How's everybody going? How's everybody doing this evening? Let's not start with going. Let's use real words. How's everybody doing this evening? Let's see those check-ins. Where's everybody from? We've got some... Oh, sorry. New York, Great Lakes, Buffalo. Uh, what else did it say? Ontario, Minnesota. <laughs> Not ready to crack open some Jägermeister. There's a gentleman that was like drinking straight Jäger tonight, and everybody was giving him a little static. So, um, what else we got here? Ontario, Minnesota, Wisconsin, more Ontario, California. That's what CA stands for, honey. Okay, that was like three episodes ago. <laughs> let's let's just drop it. <laughs> Santa Barbara, California, Washington State. We've got Northern California, Wyoming. All right, folks. So we've got a really special one this evening. Um, we haven't got a guest in a while. You've just had to deal with the two of us. Uh, this evening, we've got Ron Spomer. Uh, Ron Spomer Outdoors from Idaho with us. <laughs> it's Idaho. Idaho. It's a long drive. It is a long drive. 1,100 miles just to see you guys. Just okay. to come out here to sit for this evening's Absolutely. live. Absolutely. I'm pretty sure that Covey has something to do oh, with Oh, that's that. right. That's right. <laughs> Covey's here too. Right. If anybody's been following along on our YouTube channel, you've seen some of the videos on Covey. Probably even saw the video of us doing the introduction where we got to demo and see how Covey was doing and what we needed to specifically work on. So Ron is here to pick up Covey. We're going to be talking a little bit about some of the things that he was saying beforehand, some of the things we saw in training, how we had to work through some of those things, and then ultimately where she's at and ready to go home. Now, there's a few bookkeeping things that we need to do before we really get into the nitty gritty. Uh, some of you guys one of mentioned. Them. Yeah. One person mentioned. Somebody reached out Multiple to us. people mentioned. One person. One person specifically reached out. We've gotten some comments on some Y'all of the are too nice. YouTube That's what it comes down to. Videos. Y'all are too nice. Yes. We got... Uh, is that him? Yeah. We got a little baby in the other room, so mom's going to be jumping back and forth just a smidge just a tonight. Bit. So, anyhow, we had one person reach out and say, hey, um, you know, you guys have advertisements on this live video. I'm like, yeah, I click the monetization button because we make money off of doing these. We, we, we enjoy doing them, but we also are trying to make a living, you know, and money is part of that. So we hit the monetization button. Well, I come to find out that YouTube is putting an advertisement every three minutes in these for an hour. <laughs> so we, oh, we've got a little baby. There he is. There he is. That's the man. Woo-wee. All right, yep. so we got the information. People are like, yeah. And I said, are there really that many ads on this? Every three minutes you guys are having to watch another ad? And then we also found out that most of the ads were coming from the exact same place, which was a company called some Gundog, Gundog training company where they're setting yeah. up like you can buy their online training course. So it's every three minutes you get an advertisement for, <laughs> for this them. online training course. So... Anyhow, um, Kat and I were talking and we're like, man, that's, uh, first of all, ridiculous to have that many ads. And we wanted to say, um, we appreciate y'all and we appreciate the people that are here live and watching and with us, as well as every week you guys throw those super chats in. And that is more than enough for our time. And we really appreciate that. And to say, show how much we appreciate that. We said, dumping the monetization. So if you see an advertisement pop in, send me a little message so I can figure out how to make it go away. Because of all the super chats, we will not have advertisements in the live streams that we do 
for y'all. So what else have we got? Our Memorial Day sale. Okay, that's another big one. We have uh, Memorial Day sale. You're going to start seeing some stuff. That'll be all on standingstonesupply.com. You can check out, uh, it's a big discount. Well, it's a, it's free shipping and, and a discount 10% on e-collars, as well as you can bundle anything else in with that free shipping. And uh, we're giving away Continental U.S. Sorry, guys. Yeah, sorry, um, folks. Uh, I know there's usually a bunch of folks from Australia in and here. And Canada, unfortunately. Yes, we- free shipping is only inside the U.S. But you can take uh, advantage of the 10% off as well as we're throwing in hoorags. Those are those tubular bandanas. And then we have a discount on our, well, I guess most folks probably outside of the United States aren't going to order a shirt that says America on it with a big uh, red, white, and blue flag. But uh, if that's if you're so inclined, you're, you could also you could order get one. one. They're on. Uh, they are. They are on sale for Memorial Day. So that all will be coming here shortly. Um, aside from that, uh, we will be answering questions this evening as you guys have them in. We're going to be chit chatting with Ron, and we're going to watch. Probably the hold a baby for most of this. <laughs> Just be he just wanted content. to be held and just want to be loved. involved in the conversation. Absolutely. All right. So, Ron, why don't you take just a second and tell us a little bit about yourself. We appreciate you being here. Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, Ron Spomer, I have been a hunting writer and gun writer for, oh gosh, started in 76. So, I've been fortunate to enjoy hunting around the world both upland game birds and big game but waterfall pretty much anything and everything if it's huntable I've probably chased it at some time or another and I've got my first dog when I was probably 20 21 in college picked up a little half-breed Labrador (laughs) German Shepherd and trained her as use the word loosely um, well enough well well enough yeah but, you know, well enough to be a holy terror on South Dakota pheasants. Living out on the farm, and we had lots of pheasants, and she was just a pheasant machine. So I've pretty much had a dog ever since. You know, there were a few gaps in there where I was too busy and whatnot, and we're living in a town, city somewhere when it was inconvenient, but I always missed the dog when I didn't have it. So I picked up English setters and had, I don't know, six or seven of those and some Springer Spaniels. And, and uh, you know, I've had fair success, maybe good success, but never had that, what you would call a perfect dog, the dream dog that just really performs right. So here I am getting towards the end of my career, you know, I'm getting up there in my 60s and it's like, guess I'm going to get one more dog. And someone offered me one, Burl Setters in Wisconsin. I bumped into them hunting at my farm in South Dakota right next door, you know, and got to visiting with them and they gave me a puppy. You can't turn that down. And they got two gorgeous looking dogs. So they sent me Covey and she was just the cutest looking little 10 week old puppy. You know what that is. She's so pretty. When we post her on Instagram stories and Facebook stories, everyone's like, first of all, they're like, what kind of dog is that? Mm -hmm. And then second of all, they're like, she's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. She definitely is a looker. So one of my theories here in my older experienced ages, if I'm going to have a dog, it's probably going to screw up, right? If we all screw up and your dog is definitely going to screw up. So if I'm going to put up with a dog that messes up and screws up and throws up in the corner and all the rest of the things (laughs) dogs do, she might as well be good looking. (laughs) 
Absolutely. 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 So, that, so that's what I you went for. You wake up every day and get, you know, you got the dog right there. Yeah. It's a big part of everyday life. And you go, damn it, you are ugly. <laughs> and Covey is definitely not that. No, she is a gorgeous dog. So I was one up already. Even if she's just a, a lousy hunting dog, she at least looked good. Yeah. So I can take pictures of her and everybody goes, ooh, what a beautiful dog. Ooh, ah. And I get credit. <laughs> I like it. I like it. So uh, to give you a little bit of background, Ron and I actually ran into each other um, via a, I guess you could say media hunt. He was the writer. I was the dog supplier. It was yeah. kind of put together as a deal. Let's um, let's go ahead and run some dogs on quail. And then we also did a goose and sandhill crane. Hunt. Yep. So we do anything else? We tried to shoot pigeons. Pigeons. Yeah. We shot more pigeons than geese in that field. Yes, we did. If we'd have put pigeon decoys out, we'd have been in meat big time. I'm, and you've got videos of some of those hunts. Um, I do. Absolutely. On yep. our YouTube channel. It's a, like something turns into a crazy pigeon shoot, and then Ethan literally ate the heart. Oh, I remember. Crane. That was beautiful, man. That was a big heart. See, I've done that with <laughs> virtually every bird species at some point in time. And it's usually in a group because I like to be just weird enough, right? You know, it's... That's what I thought at the time. <laughs> <laughs> it is the first time I met Ron. And this is, a, honestly, a guy that I have idolized. I was like, man, I'd love to go hunt with Ron Spomer someday. And... Uh, then I realized he's just a normal guy, yeah, which is, sorry. is the way that most of that works, you know? I just mean, it's, normal. Well, yeah. you're not, you're just a normal guy. You're not it's like any, anything. It's, you meet any, most celebrities, even I would assume you'd be like, wow, you're a normal person. And they're like, yeah, don't treat me like a celebrity. I just. Like Except for the fun. check. When it's time to sign the check, I'd like to be treated I, like a celebrity. <laughs> celebrity. I'm still exactly. waiting for that one. Exactly. So, um, we had a lot of fun there and. That was one of those situations where I was like, I probably should eat the heart out of this crane because it's the size of a golf ball. Oh, they're huge. It was big. It was a lot. And then I got a half swallowed, <laughs> and then it was just like stuck half in half. It was. I was holding the camera, and I was shaking, laughing. At <laughs> you did not look like you were having fun. Mm-hmm. Needed something to wash that down with. Yeah. Speaking of wash it down, we've got uh, Ezra Brooks. This is a store pick from a local liquor store in Hutchinson. Um, Ezra Brooks's distillers collection. Folks, I've never had any of this. Uh, it's a brand new one on me. So there is a possibility and because no one gifted this to me, so I don't feel obligated to drink it. I don't, I, I would pour a little bit here. If it's bad, we're going to move on. If you want to try some, yeah. Pour a little, just a little. In I have there. to do that. That's good. Thank there you, sir. You go. Yep, Absolutely. And then I'll let you know. Uh, it's a new one that just came out. You can get store picks all over the place now. But uh, it's not very expensive. It's like $35 for a bottle. Um, Ezra Brooks. We'll let that. You're to Ezra. Ezra. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm actually having a beverage. Cat, for the first time in nine months, is enjoying a beverage on Yawa night. Guava lime. <laughs> From the Corona Refresca. A beverage besides water and or seltzer, seltzer water? Seltzer water, yeah. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Heyo, we've got a question came through here. It says, uh, started collar conditioning with my 12-week-old puppy. She only comes when I have treats. How do I get her to come to me without using the treats? Well, um, it sounds like you're heading in the right direction. If you've begun collar conditioning, 
that's going to be the direction that you can take a dog that's that's coming with that positive reinforcement. And this is a really, really good question because we're going to talk a little bit about this in all right, so um, we're going to talk more in specifics because this is something that both of us experienced with working with Covey. So, um, but to answer this, this dog is coming only when you're utilizing treats, okay? So when we have a dog that does that, this is how we recommend. There's two things that could be going on. First of all, with your positive reinforcement training, you've got to do it differently. A lot of times it ends up becoming essentially a, I shake the cookie jar and the dog comes, right? So then they are realistically only responding to the treat aspect of things, which is not the way that positive reinforcement should work. Um, they need to be exhibiting the behavior. The reward comes after. It's not a bribe. It is a is a reward. It's not a lure. You're not, hey, 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 look what I've got. Come do this. It's if you do this, then you get rewarded. And through enough repetition and consistency, you're going to see good results with that. But when we work with our specific genre of dog, if you will, which is hunting dog, a majority of the versatile breeds are independent. They're bred to be independent. The object of them is to go out and look for things for us. Now, there's some level of cooperation involved in that. The dog's going to be able to hunt with us. But if you look at other breeds like pet breeds, collies, they're a more reliant dog. That's a pretty common cost. Even Labradors are going to be a more reliant dog because even the best of the best, they're designed to work with you and they're always looking to you for attention. So you've got those kind of dogs. You have something slightly different. But when we have our independent dogs, you're going to get that situation where they're like, if there's not anything in it for me, that's that payday. Most of that we've talked about in other episodes, dogs are always looking for that payday and we have to figure out what that is for them. But we move into collar conditioning. So the fact that you're headed that direction is a good thing. Now, at 12 weeks old, you're probably on the, the early stages of starting this too early. You, on the early window of this being the right thing to do. Typically, we say dogs are ready anywhere from 12 to 16 weeks, depending on the groundwork that you've laid. And it does take a fairly special 12-week-old puppy um, to be able to mentally be ready for that level of training. Typically erring on the side of caution and being closer to that 16 week mark makes for, um, a better training scenario all around, especially for people that are a little less confident in their training abilities as well. So with your specific dog, what I could recommend to you at this point, because there's a little bit missing here, is if you reached out to us at patreon.com slash standingstonekennels, we're set up there to be able to actually watch a training session and we can see, is there a good understanding here? Are we ready to truly move to collar conditioning? Or is it something where we need to put a little bit more time into? So, so that's a really good question. Now, what I wanted to talk about and specifically kind of talk about with Ron is the befores and afters. So... You mentioned a little bit about dogs that you trained in the past, but let's talk more about Covey specifically, what you were doing well, what you were struggling with, and then why you were interested in seeking. Yeah, you bet. So I wanted this perfect dog. I figured if you're going to drop money on a dog, both buying it and keeping it and all the things that are involved, why shortchange yourself by not getting that dog trained properly? And I realized, as much as I like to think I know what I'm doing, when I met you and saw how your dogs were behaving and 
responding and oh my gosh, you know, there's just a huge difference between the dogs I trained and the dogs you trained. So why not take advantage of something like that for this special dog? Because I'm not likely at my age to have a heck of a lot more dogs in my life. You know, oh, they come on around 10 like in my last chicken. Yeah. Well, sure. Well, one of the, that spring chicken turns into fried chicken. So <laughs> <laughs> at any rate, I just thought I'm not going to ruin my chances with this dog. And what local guys told me was just let her develop on her own for a year or two. Okay. Don't try to train her. And I had never done that before. I'd always trained my dogs. So I thought, okay, that's worth a try. And it sort of kind of worked. So she was pointing when she wanted to. Sure. She was retrieving when she wanted to. And sometimes she just didn't want to. So she would chase and not retrieve or bring it halfway back and spit it out. And I thought, give her time, let her come around and see what develops. So she actually hunted two seasons. She got sharp tails, rough grouse, pheasants. Um, That was the bulk of it. But she had plenty of experience and she had her chances. Now, she was not progressing at anything like what I thought was fast enough. And I came to that realization after we hunted in Texas and I saw what your dogs were doing. Why should I waste more years of this dog's life and mine when we could be much more efficient in our hunts? So that's when I decided if you can teach an old dog new tricks, we've got a two and a half year old here. We got some uh, we got some static about that because we listed it as old dog new tricks and people are like, well, if a two and a half year old dog is old, then my dog is a geriatric patient at six or something yeah. like that, right? Well, and to their defense, a two and a half year old dog is not old, but a two and a half year old dog coming into its first ounce of true formal training, it's kind of on the the older range. Yeah, know, like, that's what I thought. Typically. On average, the dogs that we work with in the kennel are anywhere from six months to nine months old and up to a year on average. Mm -hmm. And then we do get a few dogs in like Covey or we've worked with a few other dogs that are in that, you know, three, four range. But the dogs that are older, it takes longer. Exactly. Dogs that are younger in a blank slate, they Mm -hmm. are sponges. They just absorb everything that we're working on teaching them. And you have less to uncondition. Right. Yeah. So, and the key point that I want to point out here, because he said she did these things when she wanted to. And that, folks, is kind of what we saw all the way along. As long as Covey wanted to do it, training went really well. So, in the beginning stages when we started with her, um, a couple of things that you mentioned is she didn't hold point well enough, right? It was she held point when she wanted to and she did a pretty good job sometimes and it got quite a bit better but still not it was as yeah, long as she rock wanted solid. to yeah yeah and then she kind of retrieved when she wanted to those are the two big things right um a little bit about pattern or hunting style you said she kind of straight line yeah and that yeah the straight line thing was mostly my fault because on our ranch we have our most productive cover is a stream course with good brush along it with forage. It's hawthorns and they eat the apples. Pheasants, sharp tails, rough grouse are all in there eating those apples. Well, it didn't take her long to figure out. There's no sense for me to go left or right up into this grass because yeah. everything's always down here in these bushes. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so she starts straight lining. So she'll get up ahead of me and she'll point. And then I'll come work on my way up and then she's moved up, crept, you would call it. But is she really creeping or are these birds running under that 
an overstory of branches. There's oh, not much on the ground, so they're probably running. There's nothing to hide in. Absolutely. So, but the birds were there. I had a hunt there. There's no sense in hunting up in the short grass where there aren't any birds. Absolutely. How do I get this? I don't know what to do. She'll go up and she just keeps making that line and making the line and the pheasants are running up ahead and there's no way to stop them. Obviously, I needed a partner. A few times that I got guys out there with me, well, you can pinch them a little bit. But so part of that was was my fault, most of it. When I would take her to South Dakota and get in a big field of grass, CRP grass or anything, then she was a lot better. Good. And then I did that for the second time just before I brought her down here last December. We were hunting South Dakota, and by the third day, she was really starting to look more consistent. And by the fourth day, I got some beautiful work out of her, including some nice, steady points at a long distance in fairly open field. And I, I remember killing that bird, and she went out and brought it halfway back. And that, that's when the light bulb really went off for me. Ethan can fine-tune this and make this a regular deal. That would be so much sweeter than all the stuff I'd been putting up with, hoping she would come around. And I think that's what you saw when I brought her out here that first day and introduced you to her again after our hunt in Texas. What she did was looked fairly impressive. Yeah, I mean, she definitely looked like she had made some progress compared to what you had been explaining her to be. (laughs) Yep, and that all happened within those four or five days before I got here. And on average, setters are a little slower to mature. um, I agree. Covey is a setter and, you know, we work with a lot of short hairs, so that's not necessarily an abnormal trait. And yes, we talk about it a lot in other Yawas that these dogs can gain so much experience from just hunting and learning and everything, but it does take longer um, to get those results because you're not necessarily setting up a perfect situation for them every time, like you're able to in training to get the reps. Right. So... So the interesting thing, I think, overall is that um, she had made good progress, and I saw that to begin with. I I will be completely honest. Knowing a little bit of history, I kind of expected some of the things that we saw, as well as knowing some setters and then getting to meet her. You see straight away, personality-wise, she has desire to do what she wants to do. And if we don't fall into that category of what Cubby wants to do, which is a pretty narrow window, it's <laughs> she likes to go hunt and she does a great job of that if it's like on her terms, right? And then we were able to develop steadiness via woe training. Just being able to apply collar conditioning to woe and say, now you stand there. Because she was, when you dropped her off at me, even if it was started five days before that, she was consistently locking up on point. Yeah. Now we can say... Stand there just a little bit longer. Yep. Um, and once we added that to the equation, that's a whole different dog. One that you can rely is going to stand there until you walk in and flush the bird or until the bird goes or whichever happens. Um, and that would be our, our personal preferred method of hunting pointing dogs is they get to break with the bird. I am a decent shot, but not the world's greatest shot. And crippled birds are a lot faster to be picked up. A lot of people, there's a lot of back and forth thing about safety and this, that, and another thing. I don't personally hunt with enough people that I'm really worried about a safety aspect of things. I trust myself and, um, and the people that I hunt with. So it's just knock on wood. We have 
been Knock very lucky. Wood. We have never had a dog shot. I've knocked on all the pieces of wood within distances of here. Me. Now, I've seen some closer calls with stuff. Um, definitely things that have, uh, you have to stop and say, hey, <laughs> don't do that again. Please. Yeah. Um, but even those were more like, it wasn't a, a close call for the dog. It was just one of those that it would have been a close call if the dog had been in the area. And you say, I don't want you to take those chances. Like, oh, I knew where the dogs were. Well, you do until you don't. You know yeah. I mean? And when you got lots of dogs on the ground, it's hard to keep track of where everyone is. I'd actually happen to be with my first dog, that Labrador. Mm-hmm. She was working a pheasant in the cattails. We always hunted really thick, nasty stuff. And most of the time I couldn't hear her. I mean, see her. I would just go by the crushing of the cattails. Yep. And I heard her working over here. And the next thing I know, of course, I'm stepping on cattails and making noise too. If I don't stop, I'm not going to hear her necessarily. So I must have been moving ahead and I see a rooster flush over to the right. The last time I'd heard her, she was left. Bird gets up, I get on it quickly and shoot just when she leaps out, snap at it. And I shot her in the head, but it was far enough that she just had a six shot in her ear and another one behind her head and didn't penetrate. But yeah, they can, and they've got a lot more athletic ability than we give them credit for. Oh, yeah. Well, and and that's a situation where, I mean, you were, is you and a dog. I mean, you had any level of, you're not used to the dogs being around, even. It's, yeah, yeah, people have no idea where the dogs are at. So it's one of those that um, stuff happens. I've had, I had a situation in training happen. Um, this was a couple of years ago now. I pride myself in the ability to be extremely safe and very aware of everything that's going on. But I had a situation where it was, I had turned to make a move and the dog made a move that was faster in a whatever direction that I didn't. And I got caught into following a bird and the dog was moving and it was one of those that I went, that was, it could have been closer than it was enough to startle me. Like nothing happened, but I went, had I not been paying as much attention, that could have been really bad because it wasn't going to be too far away. It was mm. way too close for, yeah. it would have been very bad. So it's, it's definitely one of those things that you're around it enough. Something is going to happen or have the potential of happening. It's just it. We'll talk about, it just comes down to exposure, right? Yet you still train your dogs to break at the shot. You yep. want them to get on that bird they so you're not going to break a flush. Yep. flush. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason for that is it's going to be, they're predators. So it's the most natural thing. And when I go hunting, I want it to be enjoyable. There's that aspect of it. And steady wing shot and fall requires maintenance. Now there's some differences in dogs. If you have a dog that lacks retrieving desire, um, Covey falls into that category a little bit. She would be a dog that would be really easy in comparison to some others to get steady to wing shot and fall, but you would completely, uh, you compromise the retrieving. You would completely compromise the retrieve. If we'd be able to get it back at all, it would disappear for a while where you'd shoot birds or birds at flush and you teach her not to chase them. And then here all of a sudden, She'd be like, all right, I don't have to chase those. That's cool. And mm-hmm. then you'd be like, all right, I shot one. Now go get it. And she'd be like, man, I'm just going to stand here. I don't have to chase That's it easier. anymore. Yeah. Oh. So that can happen. Now, if you fall into uh, the category of dog that is on the opposite end of the spectrum, right? So retrieving desire to the max, those dogs are going to be harder to steady up and harder to maintain because they want to go. That's all part of it. They want to be out there picking up, retrieving, bringing it back to you. Um, 
finding that balance act, which is the versatile dog, um, is what we always strive for. And it's, it's, you never hit that right on the, on the line. You're always shaded one direction or the other. And when you, you shade, you just try and barely shade. And then we play back and forth with breedings. Like, okay, you're shaded on the pointing side. You're shaded on the retrieving side. Now we can find a happy medium essentially. So, well, I've seen that in a, a number of dogs over the years. You get some guy who's really worked on that dog for steady the wing and shot, and he's yep. pretty proud of it. Yep. But as soon as you introduce someone else's dog into the mix and it breaks, that steady the wing and shot dog is having a real tough time. Absolutely. Because the competition is not getting his bird. Absolutely. And I just, I don't want to put up with having to strike, fight through that because I hunt with a lot of different folks and a lot of different dogs, and I don't want Covey to be compromised and then suddenly like, well, boss, why do these other dogs get to do it? And I don't, and I don't want to have to put her through that pressure or myself to maintain that. And for most people and the style of hunting that they do, we really don't recommend it or feel that it's necessary. And then we get the, well, just a shot. I just want them to hold until the shot goes off because that's safe. Well, what happens with that is dogs anticipate everything. I just had a conversation about this with a patron today on the phone about um, their dogs know when the safety comes off Mm. and their duck dogs. They know. They they break then? They they attempt to. Yeah, it's an anticipation thing. And dogs are very situationally oriented. They pick up patterns really quickly. So if you always send your dog on a retrieve after pet, pet, send, they're going pet, pet, going. They're not waiting for that <laughs> send anymore. If they know every time we get to go pick up ducks, when that safety comes off, they wait for that click and they're Break they're it. going. So they know, hey, every time dad mounts his gun, there's a shot coming and then we get to go. They're going as you're bringing that gun up. And when you're focused on that bird, you don't always see when that breaking is happening. No, and that's the thing is we see that we do teach dogs to be steady to wing shot and fall for advanced levels of testing or titling um, because it's a requirement for the higher levels. Master hunter, utility, um, the invitational level, which is in NAVDA, uh, even field trial stuff. If you're running, uh, depending on what stake it is, if you're running field trials, they have to be steady to wing shot and fall. And there's differences between all of those, but ultimately they stand through flush and shot. Now, when we train dogs to that, if most of the things happen in a pretty regimented, pretty controlled sequence. We flush a single bird, we shoot a single bird with a single shot. All of that stuff helps make it easier on the dog in the beginning levels. And then we add variety after that. And when I've got a dog that's no longer making mistakes, that's when we start adding the things, the variety, extra shots, missed shots, whatever. And you'll see then it'll be the the big thing is you'll pull up and you won't shoot and the dog will be going like they they anticipate everything so you have that situation and you are focused on the hunting aspect of things you're going to miss stuff and then all of a sudden you've pushed a dog to this level of higher achievement and by the time you're into hunt number 2 maybe 
they are now back at ground zero. <laughs> yeah. And you might as well have just left them at zero. Uh, it's it's easier. It's a lot, of, it's a lot of work for really nothing unless it, you're months. constantly working on it. It's months. Right? It's a lot to maintain. It's a lot to, to deal with. We've got a couple yeah. super chats here. Yep. We're going to answer some questions and we'll jump back into this here. Uh, it says, Don Fish and Hunt. Hey, thanks, buddy. You're on here a lot. We appreciate you. It says. Uh, I messed up the super chat. I messed chat. up the super That's chat. That's okay. 13-week-old GSP loves playing fetch after she retrieves half of the time she doesn't come directly back, like runs around and wants me to chase her 80% of the time when she brings back whatever we're playing with. She doesn't release it and wants to play tug very aggressively. Also, congrats on the new addition to the family. Thank you. Thank you very much. He's been a lot of fun. He's he's kept our lives interesting this last week and a half. Yeah. But that's a really great question and pretty common with puppies. Uh, the fact that she loves to retrieve that much at this point is awesome. It's Thir- really awesome. 13 weeks, was that what it, it says said? 13 weeks, yep. Awesome. So there's a couple things that we can apply that are dog brain things that are going to help you to understand what's going on. One of which is dogs understand spatial pressure really, really well. So this game, as you're referring to it as, it's directly related to spatial pressure and um Dogs know exactly what that distance for them is typically in the vicinity of four to six feet. Every dog is about the same, and that happens to fall into the category of reachable distance on average. So you can reach this way or you can take a step and reach. The dogs figure out what that zone is, and they know how to stay right on the edge of it. Um, That's all related to spatial pressure. Now, the way that you can get around that specifically, and you've probably seen this at some point in time or heard, if you want a puppy to come to you, move away from them. Well, that is moving that distance, which the dog is willing to stay that four to six foot away from you. That's pulling that distance towards you. Then you can close the gap by coming back to them while their momentum is moving toward you. So that little game of, all right, you're coming with me. Now I move back to you and we meet in the middle prevents them from continuing that circling game. Um, parading. Parading, a, a which is what it around. looks like. It's yep. like, look what I got, and I'm going to keep it from you, right? So um, understand that, and when you see it, you're going to, anybody that's working with their dog that's seeing similar things with this, they're going to be like, all right, it is. It's exactly the same distance, always, and they always make the exact same distance away from me circling. And if you try that, where you encourage them to come to you while you're moving away from them and then meet them in the middle... I think you'll see some really cool stuff with that. Another option is a check cord. Um, you can help. Don't reel them in while you're constantly applying pressure to the leash, but it would be just a little tug, tug, tug to direct them towards you. Well, again, still moving uh, back. It's not like you have to be walking a half a mile back, but a couple steps moving away from them is going to encourage that dog to come towards you. It's very, very subtle. Movement toward the dog, the dog is going to want to move away from you. And that comes into dominance-based things. And it's kind of some of the stuff that we work on teaching dogs not to jump on you. And it's making your space less inviting. So if you're moving toward the dog, which is probably the most common thing that we see people do, you reach out to meet the retrieve. You're making your space less inviting. inviting. And that's saying to the dog, go away from me. So you put that in dog body language dog and body language yeah apply that to your session and see if it helps now the next thing that you mentioned here is tug okay so very aggressively yeah we have a new puppy you've probably seen some stuff shock um she, she is a crazy 
crazy little retriever right now. She's basically the best dog that you will ever see in your entire night. I'm just joking. She's fun though. She's, she's, uh, she's, she's really been the perfect dude. puppy for us in this very hectic additional. Yes. We get child. people static all the time. They're like, yeah, we have a, a brand new puppy and we're bringing home a baby. I'm like, y'all are crazy. Look at us. We're crazy. So we're crazy, but shock has made that as easy as it could be. I mean, she's nine weeks old today. Uh, she was eight weeks old when we brought this little guy home and we had her for a week prior to that because the grit litter went home and as a singleton puppy, she'd been socializing with them, but then they're all home at their new family. So she got to start her, uh, introduction to home life a little earlier than we normally do, but knock on wood, she has had zero and I repeat that zero accidents in her crate since we've brought her home. That's a from first, from though. six and a half weeks old. That's how old is she right now? Nine? She just turned nine weeks old yeah, today. Nine weeks. Yeah, it's very impressive. And the two poop accidents she's had in the house were both Ethan's fault. Hundred percent, definitely taking full credit for those. <laughs> they were One, good poops, though. Yeah, they were. Um, so she's had a couple accidents. So she is a puppy. She is normal. Um, but she's been so good. She's quiet in her crate. She lets you know when she needs something. She, if you've seen a couple of her videos, is very focused, very ready and willing to work. Um, we haven't done any videos with her retrieving yet, but she is, she is right up there with probably Thunder as a retrieving machine, um, both muddy puppies. I wonder where they get it from. And uh, she is also, what was like? Oh, she is also the bitiest puppy we've ever had. That's she her is. one thing against her right now. She's a little land shark. So um, a couple of things we just talked about. The dogs fade that middle line, right? You're either one way or the other, but we try and stay as close as possible. She definitely shades the direction of stronger retriever. Um we talk about the the wing on a string game, right? You've seen that before. We did a video on how why we don't put a lot of emphasis on that. We don't do it a lot because it it primarily drives sight um, or visual orientation. They're looking to point everything, and that detracts from their ability to use the nose in the field. If it's overdone, for sure. If it's overdone, yep. Doing it once or twice, get a picture, see your puppy do that, cool. Well, we tried to do, we've posted a couple pictures of yeah. our most recent puppies. You saw a little picture of Baby Thunder on our Instagram page as well as tricks. They look, it's like, wow, that's an eight-week-old puppy. That's so cool. Well, that's how we did that, wing on the string game, okay? So we tried The one this, time we did the game. Yeah, yep. just once. One session, took a picture, done with it. We tried this with Splat, or uh, shock. shock, excuse me, the other day. And I, I spent about 15 minutes and I couldn't get her to, to point the wing on her string. She, she just wanted to it. catch it. Yep, she, she wanted to catch it, it so chased bad. It, chased it, chased it. So, so we're like, okay, let's throw some bumpers and get some cute puppy pictures of you retrieving bumpers. And now that we've gone on our long rant about how amazing our dog shock <laughs> is to finish answering your question about the tug of war game. <laughs> Sorry. I started it to say, yes, we do. I started it to say, we're going to shoot a video here pretty soon. I'm showing her retrieving desire. She likes to play tug, but we can utilize that to our advantage to prevent some of the issues that we have with Cubby specifically. And this is something that we encourage. This is kind of a, an opposite of what the average person says about your bird dog. Don't play tug of war because it'll make them hard mouth or whatever. If done properly and developed properly, you can utilize that to develop a strong mouth and a solid retrieve to hand naturally or pretty dang close to retrieve to hand. And 
I want to show specifically how we work with her through that. So that video will be coming out soon, but it's all about encouraging the game a little bit and then conditioning the behavior that we're actually looking for, which is a strong hold on the object. If there's things like mouthing or rolling, we can show how to work through that. But then the taking it away from her, there's a couple little tricks that I can show you, right? How to pop it out of their mouth every time. So it's never a matter of when you eventually want it, we don't have to worry about it not being able to be given to you. So that video will be coming out very soon that'll answer the rest of your questions. And we do have a video out similar. I mean, we get these questions a lot. We have lots of puppies that we're raising and developing. Similar videos do get produced, posted, edited, and available to you guys. But the cool thing is... All the puppies are just a little bit different. So we get to show you slightly different things that might align with your puppy's behaviors a little more closely. So we have a video about this um, with Thunder. So if you're waiting for Shock's video to come out, great. Um, But also you can definitely check out Thunder's video on Tug of War. And he's got his own playlist on our YouTube channel. Bump that. Sorry. Yes, he does. Okay, so we've got a couple more super chats come through here, and these are really good questions that are actually going to apply to some of the things that we're going to be talking about with Covey here in a minute as well. These are awesome. It's like you guys knew what we wanted to talk about. You guys read our minds. Um, Dawson's got a chat here. It says, can you discuss transitioning away from bird launchers in the field? What is the next step? Hunting, um, shooting preserves. That's what you're doing, I'm assuming. So, Or is hunting, shooting preserves the next step? Either way, we'll answer this and kind of play it by ear there. If you have clarification for me, just throw it in the messages. Now, what is the step away? So we utilize bird launchers, and this is a question that um, people ask a lot as they're away without utilizing electronic bird launchers because they're expensive. They're, our, they're a tool, but they cost money. So with Covey specifically, we utilize bird launchers in the beginning, even though she'd already been out pointing wild birds. Now, the reason we use bird launchers is so that I have control. The more control we can add to a training session, the more consistent it can be. And the more consistency we have, the more we can regulate what is happening and the faster that we can build progress. We can control exactly what's happening. Uncontrolled situations are unpredictable and uncontrolled. So it puts us in situations where things happen and we have to deal with it, where The bird launchers give us the ability to not only control when the birds come out, but control when the birds don't come out. So it can be one of those things that if you have a dog that's naughty, essentially not pointing birds, uh, a lot of times because they want to bump and chase, a lot of times I won't even give it to them. It's like, no, the bird didn't come out of there. And then it's not as fun anymore. It's not as fun anymore. And then we will utilize a couple different things depending on the dog and what we're seeing, but with Cubby, we were able to utilize those bird launchers, know where she was pointing, because she did a little bit of, you were talking about this earlier, about she's pointing and then running and pointing and creeping and pointing and creeping. Well, some of that could be on running birds. Some of that could be on off game or she's bored or she's pointing a mouse or who knows? Yeah, and I could never tell with sure. wild birds. Absolutely. I could see where you're going with the planet birds where you know they are. Then even, you can read the dog's behavior. Exactly. And even dizzy birds, right? So yeah. if we dizzy one and toss it in the grass, that bird can still run around. We don't know exactly where it is. Yeah. So that's a big benefit of utilizing the launchers. Now, as far as that transition away from them. Oh, go ahead. I have, depending on what you say, 
I will either add to it or be like, boom, baby, you got it. Okay. So um, in our progression, we try and develop a natural point and build steadiness through that, which this is the exact path that we took Covey through when she came here. Any dog that comes to our program, we treat as if they know nothing. The more they know, the faster they move. So with that situation, we... Um, we do, this is another thing that happens. People talk about, I wait until the dog moves and then I launch the bird. That's the exact opposite of what we would do. We want to build the amount of time that the dog is standing, always launching the bird before they move. That's rewarding them for standing. Now, once you have a dog that's consistently standing long enough that you can get within gun range, we start shooting birds over them. I'm not, I'm not looking for perfection. And we typically aren't walking all the way into flush at nope, that point either. No, just gun range. If you, you know where your launcher is That's at. the other benefit of using an electronic launcher because you don't have to get all the way in to Correct. even use a foot trap or something. You can launch from a distance, which can build on that success of that puppy and that young dog um, without overpressuring them. The only thing that, um, the only way that you can teach Mm, this not only there's a million ways to skin the cat. Okay. But a majority of the different systems to control where that bird's at require some level of overpressuring that dog. You're going to move further than that dog can stand. The dog's either going to move with you or you have to restrain the dog by now, relying on a check cord. Yep. Now you're not, um, developing natural pointing instinct. You are forcing that and then you're conditioning a behavior, but it's not in my opinion as strong or it takes longer, it doesn't move as quickly um, as allowing them to develop naturally. So utilizing electronic launchers, once we can get within gun range, we shoot birds over them. Once they're consistent with that, we've shot a handful of sessions where we're killing birds over them, then we move out to woe training. Woe training being that next step. Now we can say, you're doing a really good job standing, but if you try and move before I want you to, I can say, and this comes back to kind of like we're stopping with the check cord aspect of things, but we've already developed a, uh, a, a level of steadiness that's probably as good as the average guy needs. If you say, we hear that a lot. Well, I don't need that much. I don't need a field trial champion. I don't need, I just need the dog to hold point until I get close enough to shoot him. Well, you can do that completely naturally, utilizing proper timing on those electronic launchers. But if you want more, you want a little more steadiness, Woe training allows you to maintain that. And we're collar conditioning woe. I showed this in a video that'll be coming out here probably next week with Thunder. Um, we basically break woe training down into six steps. And all six of those steps I did with him in one training session. That is not normal. Okay. Um, he usually is impressive. <laughs> yeah, he does it all. So he would be, um, but all six steps, we took Covey through. It took her like four or five training sessions, which is more normal. You do a step and you're like, okay, we can see you've got an understanding, but you're ready to be done for the day. And then we move to the next step and the next step and next step. And so, that comes down a little bit to, you know, not only her, maybe a little bit of lack of desire on certain things, especially this is not considered a fun game for most yeah. dogs, um, but also... Some dogs have less like work ethic. Like Thunder's a workhorse. He doesn't want to quit. When we get a bumper out, he turns into a monster. Um, Ethan actually said it's kind of annoying in the video how much drive he at has times. for those bumpers yeah. at times. Well, Ron and I were talking about this beforehand. You know, like you talk about the level of dog it is. You said 
well, the, let's hear the good and the bad and the everything about Covey, right? And I said, well, I like a lot of things about Covey. One of the things that I don't specifically like from a training standpoint, because we have limited amount of time to get to a specific level, um, desire to work. I like dogs with a lot of desire to work. Now, if that desire to work crests the specific threshold, they move into the category, which is, there's a lot of zone up here, but that category of not livable. Where they can't settle down in the house. They can't become family dogs dogs because they're just bouncing off the walls, super busy. You can't get them to calm down for nothing. And those are the dogs that are too much (laughs) to live with, especially if you've got more than one in the house. And Cubby does not fall into that category. She is no. super sweet. Yeah, sweet house dog. And and again, I am not the hardcore hunter I was when I was in my 20s either. I don't need a dog that's bouncing off the walls and I constantly have to put 12 miles a day on her. Right. I can't do that anymore. So, yeah. so once we have well training done, we have a dog that will consistently stand there and knows how to be stopped. Let's say They're for handleable. whatever reason, they try and creep forward or move. We can stop them and maintain that. We go back out and shoot birds over them. That's it. With, without launchers at that point. Yep. We can move back. We can put bird, running birds out and we can handle them and work through all of those things. So, And then take them hunting, go to preserves, that sort of thing. They're ready for it. When you start seeing naughtiness happen, right? We've got to trust the dog in those wild bird situations because we don't know where the birds are at. But if you start seeing naughty stuff, that's going to be the dog. You watch a dog actively go on point. S- and speed then up. Speed up and flush the bird out. That's naughty, okay? <laughs> That's where we can start to take a half step back and apply some of those things that we taught earlier. So it's a great question. I think there's another one. There from is. It says my Jordan. yeah Jordan Levi says my seven month old GSP has a baby canine tooth with an adult one growing next to it. Advice on removing the baby tooth without going to the vet. Um, yeah, you still fall into the window that you should be able to get rid of it on your own. Um, seven months old is right after a majority of. The baby teeth should be gone. And typically, if you're going to have one, it's called a compounded canine or a compounded tooth. If you're going to have a compounded tooth, it's going to be a uh, 9.9 every 10 times, it's going to be a canine. Mm -hmm. You get that adult tooth that grows in, the baby tooth doesn't come out, and it looks like two canines next to each other. Um, Chew bones, that's going to be your best friend. As many and the harder the chew bone that you'll chew on, the better. Um, We'd utilize antlers work really good. Yep. Or even just um, some of the ones that we specifically use are the um, antler chews and then pork chomp um, rolled. The They're big, big enough. Yep. And they have to work on them a little bit. But you need chewing. Lots and lots and lots and lots of chewing to get that tooth worked out. It's only hanging on there by the amount of pressure that's there. And as soon as they can get worked on it enough, it's going to come out. A or, little bit of tug of war might not be a bad thing either. Well, yeah. The... Uh, but the big thing is going to be chewing. If you get to that nine, 10 month range, or you see inflammation or swelling or infection, irritation, anything else that's happening around that, you're going to have to go to the vet to take care of your dog. But at this point, I mean, that compounded canine really has no threat to the dog, but it does need to come out eventually. So, um, Chew bones are going to be your friend. We've seen that work for a lot of dogs. It's, it's a, it's a, it's pretty a super, common. It's not a super common thing, but it's common enough that you know exactly what it is when it happens. And I guess we see a lot of dogs, so we do. I, I would say, uh, I would say pretty regularly, 
we have the dogs because they usually come in that six to seven month range. We see quite a few dogs with compounded canines. And I usually mention it like, hey, did you know that they have a compounded canine on both sides? Or, oh, no, I hadn't seen that yet. And so we say, well, we just give them some extra bones. And if it hadn't gone away in a month or so, then we'll let you, you know. know. Let you know. But they have to go in and, get, and then they just go in and pull them out. They have to put them under to do it, but they just go in and tweak on them. They've come out. The ones you're working with mostly get them out themselves. Yeah. Most of the it. time. I think we've had one or two one or two that have had to go to the vet and get removed. Who? Uh, well, Clutch had I feel two. like Clutch did, yeah. But it wasn't, a, I think he, he falls into that point 1% that finally... I was talking about. It wasn't a canine. Was it a canine? It was, I'm almost positive it was a canine. But I don't think it came out on its own. I think we had to have it get taken out. Which was interesting because I think um, Bob mentioned he had a couple different dogs in the litter that had yes, yeah, that had teeth. So it brings me back to my point that I try and push on a regular basis. Everything is genetic. Now that's not something that is in the grand scheme of things going to affect much. You know, it's a it's a little thing, but still genetics. All right. So was there one more? Oh, I don't think so. I think that's it right now. Oh, okay. Just didn't want to make sure we missed anything. Absolutely. So uh, Ron. Came out. He's here to pick up Covey. Okay. Um, we're going to be going through everything that she learned and we're going to do our best, barring mom's ability and everybody's ability. We're going to try and video this so that you can kind of see the send home process and what that looks like. Now, we showed a video recently. You saw it, I would assume, maybe, maybe not. No, I've been on the road. Okay. So Ron's been on the road. We shot a video recently of Covey where she's kind of finishing up. And I sent you clips of that, but. Um, basically the fact that she's out there, she's doing it. She's still a little lackadaisical about the retrieving. Like she puts in the least amount of effort possible. She goes over and she's like, and picks it up by a feather. There you go. <laughs> okay. So in that, I was like, we're, we're a good couple weeks left. That's when I realized I was like, Ron, she's ready to come get her buddy. So we, um, but she's still, she was putting in kind of the least amount of effort, but doing the task and yeah. I explained, you know, it's one of those things that we already have a dog that doesn't always want to do these things. So we have to float that line of catering to what she wants. And, you know, granted, if you check the box, right, she is picking up and bringing the bird back. It's at her own style. Very delicately. Huh? Very delicately. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, but, God. You know, there's a plus side to that, right? There's no ruined meat ever. I like that. Um, the negatives, it's not tenderized. You know, we've got some dogs that are good tenderizers. Well, yeah, that, yeah, that actually surprises me because she was biting. That's it. Yeah. We went opposite extremes. She was like borderline eating guarding birds, right? The first bird she ever retrieved, she practically ate it. She picked up a sharp tail and she was coming to me and I thought, oh, this is going to be the world's greatest dog. Look at this first bird, four (laughs) months old. And she goes right around me and heads for the barn. (laughs) She was going to claim this bird. Goodness. So we went from that and we, you haven't got to see this yet. Nobody has, but the progression that we went through is we changed things up a little bit. I mentioned to you, we need to start prepping her because I'm hoping we get the opportunity to hunt together, but preparing her to hunt with other dogs, which involves backing and honoring retrieves oh, yeah. and that just sort of knowing thing. how to hunt with another dog in a field. So adding that level of competition, it changed things for her uh-huh, for the better. Yes. And so now she, she tore out to get a bird and pick it up by its feather. 
and somebody stole it from her. Aha. Uh-huh. All right. So we allow a little bit of that to happen, right? As long as there's not, not like actively ripping birds apart or fighting over them. But it teaches dogs like, if you want it, you got to hold on to it. Don't, don't just be lackadaisical or it's not going to stay in your mouth. And we're seeing a whole new level of spark come out there. So it, it has taken a little bit of time, but it has come full circle to, to where we want it to be. Oh, good. I hadn't even thought of that, but see, I'd hunted with my friends, uh, short hair and it took birds from her. Mm -hmm. And so she had a little bit of experience with that. So probably took pretty quickly when you did that, huh? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, good. Absolutely. That's interesting. I like that. So we've got uh, some success here. Yeah, all the way around. Now, I don't know anybody that's been following exactly, but I mentioned in the beginning we've um, we spent about 30 days, and that was kind of we got through the initial field aspect of stuff that was um, developing that natural stuff with me watching her and then pulling her out of woe training her and taking her back and shooting birds over. We made pretty good progress where she was running out, picking those birds up, which was what you'd seen in those few days. And this is something that happens pretty regularly for dogs. You don't see, it, it seems like the progress will be on this really shallow mm-hmm. uptick and then the light switch. It's just like magic. Now we do it. Right. Yep. Um, and that's a very common thing. It's just once dogs get stuff, they just get it. And enough exposure and opportunities to put all the pieces together and go, Oh, now I know how to do this. Right. So it we, clicks. It does. It just clicks. And we went through that first about 30 days and it just clicked. So she was pointing. She was steady on her bird. She's flying through the field. She's looking awesome. She's picking up those birds that I shot for. She's bringing them back most of the way-ish, dropping them within a about that six-foot window, you know, kind of what we were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then it's like, all right, so now it's time to fix the retrieving situation. Now, with the average dog, we spend four to eight weeks with an average truly probably being around that six week mark to take a dog all the way through formal retrieving work. That's going to be formal understanding of hold and fetch and then collar condition to that so that they will pick up anything and bring it back and deliver to hand. Cubby spent five months (laughs) working solely on what the average dog takes about six weeks. Oh, this is embarrassing. Okay. I'm glad there's not a genetic component of mine in here. <laughs> so I'm glad we're having this conversation on live, Yawa. <laughs> we can't edit that part out. <laughs> so um, the thing about it, though, and I don't want to sound all that bad. This It comes down to her desire to work. And so through the beginning basic steps, a lot of it's just like anything. It's conditioning and it's development and it's teaching and we taught all of the steps and I was like, all right, Covey's doing a pretty good job. I mean, we hit that about month mark and she's clicking right along. And then we move into the collar conditioning aspect of things where it says, all right, now you have to do this. And that's where we kind of fell off the wagon. Anything Covey wants to do, she does. Anything she doesn't want to do, she does a darn good job of pouting and holding out. I mean, I... I almost, I will admit, I almost gave up on the, we were going to truly get there. I don't think I could outlast you, Cubby. And then it just, it just flipped. It was like, we got to a stage in the training. We're like, you have proven to me now. You 100% know how to do this. 
We've taken enough time. We've developed at your rate. You know how to do this. You're proven that you can do this. You've demoed you can do this and consistently do it. If I make you with this, with stimulation, if I say, go pick that up, she's like, fine, I'll go get it and come back. But if it comes down to here, take this opportunity to do it on your, on your, on your own, she wouldn't do it. Hmm. It was, so I she, will not do it. She was not making this connection between I'm a hunting dog. This is my buddy who hunts with me. We go out, I find the birds, he shoots them. Without him, I'm nothing. But then I could at least reward him by bringing it back to him. No? He'll uh, feed me tonight, maybe? No, there was none of that. <laughs> none of that. Uh-uh. It's all me. I have fun with the birds, but after I'm done, I'm done. You go get your own. Yep. Oh, okay. That's, that's pretty much it. And it, it was almost like she was like, I refuse to allow this to be fun again. <laughs> kind of. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was like, you made this formal and it involved training and I only wanted to do it for fun and I wanted to do it my way. And now that we're done with this, I'm not going to enjoy it. But then you started to get that enjoyment back. How did you do that? There were a couple different things. So first of all, and we, um, I mentioned this in the video because it credit where credit is due. Um, multiple trainers make a huge difference. You play essentially good cop, bad cop, everything that was formal. And I don't even want to say negative because I took, it took us five months, right? I'm talking a six week process that on an average dog took us five months. So we slow rolled it for her. We took it at her speed. We developed as she was ready to work and train and develop. And it was just to the point where she's like, you are the one that has made me do these things that I don't want to do. So I won't do it for you. Well, then we switch out and it happened a couple times throughout the process. I'm like, I've kind of hit a wall with Covey. Um, Jess, will you work her? This is what she knows. This is what she wrapped. Jess is a huge part of our team and she would come through and she can take a slightly different approach, a different personality, a different person. Um, dogs are place situationally oriented and that situation doesn't involve me. It's different. Oh, so that kind of, we got a little puke. All right. So <laughs> that you literally now have on your shirt. That's fine. We're good. We're good with it. So we, um, so we play, Jess, Jess is working the good cop. And we essentially, and yeah. And she In has, this situation. So, so we talk about, you know, specific situations where, getting overly excited with a dog can make them make mistakes. And then you have to make corrections for those mistakes. And we definitely don't want to do that and, you know, cause a reverse in progress, but some dogs need that level of praise and excitement to be like, Oh, I did a good job. And so Ethan's level of excitement is not quite up to par with what Covey was appreciating is like, Oh, he thought I did a good job. He's like, Good girl, Covey. <laughs> and Jess I don't is- get all really excited with any dogs. No, you know exactly. I mean? That's a big thing. And when I try, dogs can 100% sense that it's fake. Yeah. Mm. Whereas- See, this, this is interesting because when I was training Covey to hold a bumper and fetch and stuff, 
I just poured the praise on her, and mm-hmm. she really responded. Yes. She likes it. Yeah, that's what I noticed about her. So I may have set you up for a trouble here. No. and uh, No, it's it's an individual dog's personality. I don't think you created this or did this. It's just her. But, but that's what I needed to do to get her to respond. Yeah, exactly. and that's why we needed She wasn't all that interested, Jess. and it's like, yeah, I don't want to do this. But when I laid the praise on, she just beamed. Well, and um, that's a fantastic way to teach, but... If it comes down to I am not as excited about that praise right now or I don't want to do it this minute, Mm -hmm. then you run into a situation of how do we reinforce that? How can we say you you kind of have to do this now? I mean, it's part of your job. Yeah. Um, And that's where color conditioning comes in. Well, we've got a dog that is primarily responding to that praise. It's really good when she wants to do it, right? Well, when we move into that collar conditioning aspect, she even responded fairly well to that. I mean, it was like, okay, I can do this. But then it, there was some resentment that came out. It was like, I don't want to do this. It's no longer fun. And no amount of fake Ethan praise will help make me feel better about this. So then I've got to take it away and say, all right, now I need real praise. Come on, Jess, come in here and pump this dog up okay. again. And she'd come in and do rep the exact same thing, the exact same way that I was doing it from a, technical standpoint but have that new fun praise vibe Mm -hmm. so how enthusiastic in praise is jess uh when she needs to be extremely really just lays it on thick oh man yeah she She throws puppy parties that's what she calls it yeah she'll throw a puppy party for a dog like excitement puppy parties watch the instagram stories once in a while would you Okay, I missed that, folks. So we have puppy parties, okay? So anyhow, there's a lot of enthusiasm there. Well, then it would come back and like, okay, you've gotten over this small hump. Now I can work through some things again. And when we involve the collar conditioning aspect of things, we have to move from a point of its conditioning to then proofing. All right, so we lay low levels all the time. And you are showing, yes, you can respond to that low level of stimulation, but... As the level of excitement heightens, you're going to be able to ignore that low level of stimulation. That is how it works. I'm sure that most people that have tried collar conditioning or worked with a dog have found that maybe around the house, around the yard, my dog responds to this level. But if they get out chasing things, oh boy, doesn't doesn't work, right? So then the only thing we have is to go to a higher level of attention getter. Mm -hmm. More stimulation on the collar, but a higher level of attention getter, if that's the first time that the dog actually gets to experience that, it can be overwhelming or it can cause huge problems. So in order to proof your collar conditioning, we take something that we've got that's proven. I understand. I can shut the collar off by complying. And then we turn the collar up a little bit and then a little bit more and then a little bit more. And that's that amount is going to be different for every single dog. It's not a, oh, we stop at level six or whatever. If for some dogs, it may be a level two is proofing the collar because they're more sensitive. Where other dogs, it might be like 15 out of 16 is proofing the collar. Wow. You find a level that you get to the point where you see um, the dog is no longer able to ignore it. Mm-hmm. And you're going to see one of two things. You're going to see a dog that either avoids the task or completes the task faster. If they complete the task faster, you go, you understand this. Then we back the pressure off completely. We don't need that anymore. But if we ever do need this, you have experienced it in a controlled situation, 
and we know that you can handle it. So we move into that. Then I end up back with Cubby, who doesn't want anything to do with me, right? So then insert Jess. She says, okay, well, you know how to do this, dear. Let's go have fun. And she was able to make, again, progress. Then we go back to the field. And I had a conversation with you specifically about this. I was like, okay, we have full understanding. We haven't applied a lot of this to birds yet because I don't want pressure to be associated with birds or we may cause other issues. Yeah, remember that. We had issues. Did have them. Back in the field. She comes out there. She's flying around. She's having a good time. She points her birds. I shoot one for her. She goes over to it. She's like, nah, I don't want to retrieve this. Uh Well, you've already proven in the yard, in the field, all of the places. You can fetch things. You understand fetch. So then we go over and say, no, you're going to fetch this. That's not that abnormal for them to snub a bird or be sloppy. They revert back to what they were doing in the past because they're placed and situationally oriented. So this situation is back to what we were doing before. That's pretty normal in the beginning stages of each transition. So she snubs a bird and I say, all right, no, no, we're going to go over and fetch it. And I have to handle her to fetch it. We're using stimulation. We have to make her do it. Well, she goes over and completes the task. Then we get to the next bird and she goes, oh, that's a bird. And she pulls off of the bird and goes the other way. Whoa. Yep. That's what I was afraid could potentially happen because we fall into that category of desire to work is lower. And if it's not Covey's idea, well, she's smart enough. And this, usually those things all come hand in hand with a dog that's overly intelligent. Hyperintelligence allows her to go, that's a bird. Last time they made me do that. So I'll show them and I'll move on from this. Oh, that sounds like Covey. Mm-hmm. We, we just see that around the house. My wife even knows it. She says, this dog is too smart for our own good. Yes, she is. Very much so. Uh, all of the quirks included. Covey's been a lot of fun. You know, she's been a lot of fun to work with. So the how we worked through that was basically I just showed her, you don't have an option with that either. Run her across the bird. You see acknowledgement. I stop her. We've woe trained her now. So I say, hey, stand there. But we use as little pressure as is physically possible. It doesn't take much. She's pretty low-key dog or softer dog. So it's like, hey, whoa, yep, okay, now you're standing there. Good. Shoot the bird. Now go get it. This is fun, right? So we have to, but then insert the the fun person. I'm more like the fun sucker. Um, Jess comes out. Like, you guys take Covey and shoot a couple rounds of birds over and see if you can help work through this. That she only needs one or two on the collar. That's all the higher you ever have to go. She knows all of the things. She just needs to do it where it's not directly related to me. Well, it took one session. As soon as you remove me from the picture, she was like, oh, yeah, I can kind of do this because it's not him. But then I can come back into it and go, all right, let's go do this. Now that you can do this and everything happens. And that was the... Back and forth, yep. And then as soon as we we saw that, I went, all right, let's video this and show our progress. We videoed that, and then when we've got a couple weeks left, it was about two weeks ago we did that, and then I started running her with multiple dogs, and that's where we really started to see some some serious see, that, I, I would not have thought of the multiple dog thing. I would have been so frustrated doing what you were doing up to that <laughs> point, and I didn't have a Jess in the background to take it. Mm-hmm. That is where the 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 team yes, is huge. huge advantage to having that team approach. I hadn't even thought of that, but that just makes perfect sense. The other side of it is, I mean, the team the team approach probably applies to everything, right? So dogs that come through our program, they get to work with multiple people. Where not to 
talk bad about, but the average dog program, it's unless they're big, it's one guy. He's got some dogs. He does a great job with them, but they learn how to work for him. Yeah. So here we've got the opportunity. We have uh, five different employees. They all work with repping and handling and training. Um, you know, Kat and I do and Jess do a majority of the the formal training when it comes to those things. Okay, I'm over it, Mom. But um, having the team is huge. Now, when Kat and I started, we fell into that category. It was her and I. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, I did a group of dogs and she did a group of dogs. And there wasn't as much crossover because there's only so many hours in the day. And the level of training that we can turn out now with a team of people is drastically better than what. Yeah. With a team of people is, is drastically better. And before it would be her and I would have been the good cop, bad cop. I always fall in the bad cop category. It's just because like my fun is fake. I just am not an overly excitable person to begin with. So you apply that to like anybody. Ask any dog trainer that works through the, the formal retrieving process. It's not fun for anybody involved. It's it's just a means to an end. And I explain a lot of that more advanced stuff as it's like the college classes, right? You got to take them. They do better you. But the end goal is good over there. But in the middle, there's some... Not as much fun stuff. It's just straight learning. We yep. just gotta, we just gotta do it, and we gotta move on. So, yeah. um, we are to the point where I'm really excited to have you here, so that you can come pick Covey up. I can show you where she's at, and then hopefully, we get the opportunity to hunt together this fall. What I want to do this fall, if you can come out, we've talked about this five bird thing. We can get yes. five species in one hunt, probably in one day if we really hit it hard and ump it. Goodness. Because you just go from one habitat to the next. You go from blue grouse to rough grouse to to uh, valley quail to Now, hunts. valley quail, those are the ones with the little things on their head? Well, that's one of the species. There's like three of them that have that. There's three. Yeah, so there's California, California quail, quail. Gamble's quail down in Arizona and uh-huh. mountain quail. Uh, up in the forests in the chaparral in Washington, Oregon, California. So valley quail that you're talking about. That's a California quail, the okay. valley quail. And they've got the little top knot. And they look a lot like gambles quail, just a little bit different plumage on the breast and stuff. Quail are an interesting species. They have a lot of different names. And I think most birds probably do. But like uh, chucker, also known as gray partridge. No, that's the hun. Huns are yes. gray partridge. Hun yeah, is yeah, 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 a gray yeah. partridge. Yeah, chuckers are only ever called chuckers that I've ever heard. Okay. Uh, they probably get some curse words called that. Well, bro. the reason they call them chuckers is because they're laughing at you. Chuckle, 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 chuckle. That's what they, they sound, sound like. They sound like that. Yeah, yeah you, you, you chase them all the way up the mountain, and then they just go over the crest and they fly away. By the time you get there, there's nothing left but old scent, and they're <laughs> laughing at you on the other side. Where they've flown all the way back down to the down bottom. bottom on the other side. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Come and get me. Chuck, 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 chuck. Chuckle, chuckle. So, Hungarian partridge, gray That's partridge. A gray partridge. Yep. Then you've got uh, scaled quail. Scaled which quail. Also, blue quail or cotton tops. Cotton tops. I hadn't heard that. Yeah, that little white top on him. On okay, that makes quail. sense. Uh, Merns quail. Harlequin, Montezuma, Merns, uh, fool's quail. Fool's quail. I can think of four names for those. Goodness. What about Bob Whites? They just have Bob Whites? Yeah, gentlemen Bob White or just plain birds. When they were the bird in the south and southeast, they just said, we're hunting birds. And everybody knew you were hunting Bob White quail. Interesting. Yeah. Or Bob's. All right. So we've got uh, pheasants. 
It'd be roosters. Yeah, yeah ring necks. For dudes, ring necks or roosters. Um, yep. What ditch, other ditch parrots? Ditch parrots. Yes. <laughs> um, what else have we got for? We covered. Oh, you want more birds? More species? More species that have random. Well, names. you get into the forest grouse, and you've got blue grouse, blue grouse. which. Pretty much everybody's called them blues, but now they're actually called duskies or sooty grouse. They because there's two subspecies. Genetic? Right? No, they're both species. Genetically, they've done those genetic tests and found that they're two so they're species. Even and they they're the differences between them are extremely minor. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, as often is with a lot of birds, they look almost exactly the same, and then there ends up being a genetic component that makes them different species. So they're not technically both blue grouse. No, neither, neither one of them's a blue grouse anymore. I still call them blue grouse, yeah. but they're a sooty grouse and a dusky grouse. So then you have rough grouse. Rough grouse, yeah. Um, Are there I, any other names for Anybody know any names for rough grouse? King of game birds. That's yeah. the king. We would call those flush counters, right? And a lot of people call them rough grouse. Rough They don't grouse. quite get that rough. ED part of it, yeah. which is the feathers around their throat are like a rough on the collars in the... Elizabethan English. Okay. So they have those extraordinary collars. That's what it looks like when they're displaying. Uh, and if you get into South Dakota, they have grouse. Sharp which, tails and prairie chickens. Which refer to sharp tails and prairie chickens. Yeah, they just lump them as prairie grouse. But mm-hmm. one's the sharp-tailed grouse and the other's the greater prairie chicken. Now, in Kansas, there's greater prairie chicken and lesser prairie chicken. Yes. And the you lesser. cannot shoot the lessers. Nah, it looks like they're going to be on the endangered species list. I believe that we've seen there was one place in Can- when we were out north or western part of state there was um lessers out there and i saw one group of them it was one time yeah they flew by and they were small they were not big like They're a little bit smaller than the greater chicken and the barring is tighter okay on their on their breasts. I hunted them back in the eighties. Speaking of barring, okay, so South Dakota, do you I believe that we killed a hybrid between what do we got? Tucker are also called red legged devil birds. Red legged devil, <laughs> devil birds. Bird, I like yeah. that. Um well, I believe that we shot this year a hybrid between a sharp tail and a prairie chicken. Have you ever seen that, or do you think that's possible? Or oh, yeah, yeah, that happens quite a bit. Okay. I have seen them on the leks competing for the hens. Really? Yeah, they're both on the same lek doing their dances, and then when they crossbreed, they don't know how to dance because the chicken does one thing and the sharp tail does something else. They look totally different. Yeah, so the, the chicken hi- hybrid is trying to dance half like a sharp tail and half like a prairie chicken. Interesting. Yeah, it's weird. They've also found them crossed with sage grouse. That one is really weird, a sharp tail and a sage grouse, because the sage grouse is so big. They are big, and then the sage grouse fan is like crazy. Yeah, they've got the big turkey fan, uh-huh. and then they get this huge pouch in the front. You know, the chickens get the orange bags on the side when yep. they coot, yep. and the sharp tails have a little lilac, beautiful lilac purple one. But they don't make a big, strong boom, 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 uh-huh. the way prairie chickens do. But the sage grouse blows up this huge, ugly, yellow-green sack surrounded by some beautiful white feathers, but it gets huge. And those sage-grouse, they refer to them as bombers. Yeah, right, the bomber, big ones. the big old males. Uh-huh. But when they, they suck in a bunch of air, and then you think there's going to be this huge booming sound when they get, and they just go, 
It's just like, that's it? It's the best you can do? It, it is weird. Uh, thunder, thunder wings or thunder chickens? Thunder those chickens, are, yeah. Are those the uh, Thunderbird? We've got of, mountain chickens. <laughs> I haven't heard of mountain chicken, but you know, the Native Americans had the Thunderbird and see a lot of old hotels the thunderbird hotel and stuff like that that was the sage cross reference um i heard uh blue grouse dusky or sooty grouse okay it's fun ticket is punched haven't hit spruce grouse yet spruce grouse what are the names they have i don't think there are too many it's not a real sporting quality bird because they they're the one that fools a fool's hen or a fool's grouse because they just don't get hunted all that much. They don't see people. They're 7,000 feet and higher in the Rocky Mountains. That's kind of been my, you know, I, I don't know the exact elevation, but that's been my experience when we've encountered the blue grouse, whatever they are now, actually. But yeah. the, um, like, we came across some dogs went on point. I saw them sitting on this rock in front of the dogs, and they got up and they flew into the tree and yeah. sat there. Yeah. So mount, mountain men's like like dinner or something like that's what uh, blue grouse chicken dinner chicken yeah dinner. and then if, so the spruce grouse is is at high elevations and of course they eat the spruce needles in the winter to survive and they'll stay up in the trees and hardly even come down I guess but they may land in the snow overnight like sharp or like uh, rough grouse do they'll just dive right into the snow and use it as a blanket to sleep at night helps them retain body heat. Interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things that go on with those birds. What a lot of folks don't realize is that our ptarmigan are grouse. All the grouse in the world are northern hemisphere, circumpolar, and all the ptarmigan are a grouse. And you can tell a grouse from a quail or a pheasant or a turkey or any other gallinaceous birds, they don't have the naked leg on the bottom half. They have feathers all the way down to their feet, and some of them will even go down almost to the toenails. Interesting. And the ptarmigan are one of those that those feathers go way down there, almost to their toenails. But Franklin don't fall into the grouse category. No, Franklin is, that's an African gallinaceous bird. They're in Hawaii too. Yeah, they introduced them to Hawaii. They have a lot of introduced birds in Hawaii. Interesting. Valley quail are out there too, and turkeys. Yeah. Okay, so we got off topic a little bit. What are the ones that we have the opportunity to kill in Idaho though? Okay, so we're going to go up high and... Try to find a spruce grouse, but we've got to go to a special spot that's high enough for those. We may run into some blue grouse while we're doing that. But the place we're going to get five at once, I'm not going to give it away here. <laughs> My secret spot. We're going to start. Are. They, <laughs> put that phone down. We're going to go for blue grouse, and then we're okay. going to drop over the north-facing slope where it's wetter and cooler, and we're going to find rough grouse. Then we're going to get to the bottom where you've got thickets of brush that could probably have the valley quail in them, especially if there's blackberries in there. Okay. They love those thorny blackberries. And then we go out of that valley toward the north so that the sun hits it and dries it out, and then you can turn into grasslands, and that's where we're going to find the huns, gray partridge. And then we're going to keep going up that as it gets steeper and steeper into the rocks that are facing south, and they're all dried out, and that's where the chuckers are going to be. That's awesome. So we should get... Four or five species in one trip. <laughs> this sounds absolutely fantastic. Now, folks, I believe um, we're coming up here on an hour and a half. We usually try and stick to an hour. I get to chat and sometimes 
Let's see here. Have any other things? I think that sounds like an absolutely fantastic time. It is on the list. What time of year do we got to do this? Late September, early October is probably ideal. Okay. Um, I would say that it's, unless something happens, it's going to be at the top of the list of things to try and plan. Um, we will keep you all posted on that. I plan, we planned on some stuff before things got, this was uh, something we planned a while ago and that COVID kind of interrupted. Yeah, we were going to do that last fall. So if we can make it happen, there'll be a little bit of prep stuff that we've got to do some videos on, on how to prepare the dogs for this, a, a type of hunt like this. And then we'll do our best to be able to create a little bit of content where we're actually, actually out there working through different situations that we come across. And if you want to hunt Chucker a lot, we probably need to introduce the dogs to Cliffs. Okay. Because there are dogs that have come out there and they're running across a flat grassland and there's a literal cliff on the end of that grass. And if it's fairly tall, the dog's pretty excited. They have been known to just go right off that edge. So you got to walk them out to the edge and show them. This is a cliff, dude. You don't want to just go charging over these things. We don't have any of those here. I know. So come out a day early. We'll do the cliff day. That's awesome. That's awesome. We've got... Uh... I think that's it for them, folks, here. I think that that sounds um, like an absolutely fantastic time. Guys, I really appreciate you being here with us this evening. I am out of bourbon in my glass. I think Ron's just about out of bourbon. Got one little bit left. We're out of uh, mama because she's taking care of baby this evening now. And um, I I just want to say, Ron, I really appreciate you being here with us. And I'm excited to show you your dog tomorrow. I'm excited to see. I'm really impressed with what you've done on the videos you sent me. So this will be the first time I've seen Covey since last December. That'd be six full months. Yeah. What do you think she's going to do? You think she's going to remember me? I, I We should video it, though. I think she's going to jump all over you. Think so? Yep, I believe it. Okay. I taught her not to jump up on me. I bet she jumps all over you. <laughs> She'll be happy to see you. I'll be happy to see her, too. Perfect. Well, guys, I'm the guy with the pink gun. And again, Ron, thank you for being with us. Kat, we'll see you next week. Uh, we'll see you in the next video, guys. <laughs>